So hey, we're working our way through the difficult sayings of Jesus this summer. Right? Uh, John pointed out last... We've done several of these. And John pointed out last week that he had the hardest one. Right? Because in his, the disciples actually said, this is a hard saying. They admitted it was hard. Uh, which is probably true. I mean, he did need 50 minutes to explain it. So, I mean, it must be the hardest one. I am not going to take 50 minutes. Mine must not be near as difficult as John's. So, uh, yeah. So, we're working through the difficult sayings of Jesus. Obviously, like... We're not going to get through of all the difficult sayings because we have like, what, 10 weeks, 10 Tuesdays over the summer and the difficult saying of Jesus basically includes anything and everything Jesus ever said, right? Because like it just, I just, when I read what he says to people, almost all of it at least has some level of like, oh, whoa, because, because what Jesus came to do is not to just come and affirm us in where we're at. Like, Jesus literally came in order to press on some things. In order to tell us some hard things that we don't want to hear. He came and said things um, that, that, like, to challenge our worldview. To lead us into seeing the world, seeing God, seeing others in in a way that that we would never have arrived to on ourselves. So what he's going to say are going to naturally press on our natural reasonings. And so there's this, like, all of Scripture can kind of fit under this, um, which means it was a lot to pick from for me, which is good and bad because I have a lot to pick from, but I have to narrow it down. So as I'm, like, trying to think through some of the things that I find difficult or have found difficult in the past, my mind kind of just instantly tracks to Matthew chapter 25, which is where we're going to be tonight. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. Uh, If you did not bring one, bring one next week. And we're going to put it on the screen. So... Um, I'm not reading it yet, Tim, but we're going to be in Matthew 25. And the reason I find this so hard is because Jesus is talking about, in this section, he just kind of announced that I'm, I'm going to go to my death. And I should have spit my gun out. I'm going to go to my death. And, uh, and, and, like, and so with that, um, I'm going to be leaving you. And so... I'm going to then leave you for a while, and then I'm going to return, and this is what it's going to be like when I return. And so, at the return of Christ, there's some pretty black and white stuff he says, there's some separation that happens, and this is what he gets into in Matthew 25 in describing his return. So, when he tells, and so what, the way he does this, though, is not simply just telling them everything that's going to go down, and he doesn't tell them when he's going to come back, just that he's going to come back. And instructs them to be ready. And the way he instructs them in this is through a series of short stories. He tells stories rather than simply just kind of laying out like a timeline on a chart. He tells them stories of what this is going to be like. And so he tells stories like, uh, like these, these women waiting for the, the groom to, to return. And, and like the reward goes to those who have been, who are ready. Who are willingly, like, they're ready and anticipating his return. And so the, the translation, obviously, is like, we should be anticipating Christ's return. We don't know when it's going to be. It's going to be a long time. And so we're going to have a tendency to want to kind of fall away and be like, yeah, whatever, he's not coming back. But, but no, be ready. Uh, and then the one I'm going to talk to tonight is in 14. And then the one after it is actually like, this is Jesus separating, like, sheep from goats. We're, we're just going to split you up, and we're going to definitely draw some lines. But the one we're going to talk about today begins in verse 14. And so, this is the short story that Jesus tells. 
For it, that's for the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey, who calls his servants and entrusted to them his property. The one who gave to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So I'm going to go through this real slow. I want to really pick this part. So I want you guys to do me a favor. So what we're going to be looking at here is not just what it's saying, but what's Jesus actually getting at in this parable? Like what's he after? What's he trying to instruct? What does he want as a response? So we're going to go through it slow. And I want you who have heard it before to try to pretend you're hearing this for like the first time. You're just, you're just kind, of, kind of taking in as it comes. So he, he sets the stage here, and this is where we're at. John, your phone's in the way. All right. He sets the stage here, and the premise is simple. The master is going away on a journey, and he's got some servants. And so in his absence, he is going to give them the, these talents and, and expects them to, do, to manage them while he's away. Now, when we hear talents, they, they can actually be a difficult thing because we hear, like, talents is an English word. For, for something very different than what the Bible actually means. Like this is, when he says a talent, he means like a unit of money. This is not like the master went away and he gave them really good, like this ability to juggle. To one, he gave like a really sweet moonwalk. To one, like I got some sweet bow staff skills. Like, I don't know. He's not like, you get to sing and you can like lick your elbow. I don't know. All these like talent show stuff. Like that's not at all what he's talking about. Talents are money. And, that's, and like while there's some debate, does anybody have a study Bible here? Does it say how much a talent is worth? Which study Bible is that? Okay, we'll skip that one. No, I'm just kidding. No, okay. Go ahead and call that when you get it. But there is some like, Kind of debate, but what, what all scholars do agree on, it's an approximation, but they agree that it's a lot. So, like, what do you got? It says 6,000 denarii or 20 years wages for a laborer. 20 years, 20 years wages. So, your salary times 20, all in one is one like talent. So, he gives away five talents to one guy. Like, oh, okay, 100 years salary. So, what, like, okay, so this is a lot of money. Like, don't picture, like, here, here's, a, like, a quarter. Picture, like, here's this giant Scrooge McDuck bag full of money, right? He's got this burlap sack with a dollar sign on it that he's handing out to these guys. And so, to get, so already we set the stage. This, this master is being super generous here. He's, he, has, he has a lot and is quickly giving it away. So, like, to give somebody 20-year salary in one go is a ton. To give somebody five is ridiculous. And so the stage is set. As Jesus tells a story, like, we need to remember, this isn't an event that happened. This is a story Jesus told. And he's setting our expectations for the master. And the master is super generous in this story. He's giving lots of money. He gave one guy five. He gave one guy two. And he gave one guy three bags of Scrooge McDuck money. Okay? So he's handing them out a lot of money. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And he who had two talents made two talents more. All right, you see, you see what he's going. But 
He who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. For some reason, right? This should strike us as weird. Like, most of us may may have heard this before, so that doesn't seem abnormal. But if I hand you 20 years salary and your impulse is to dig a hole, there's something weird going on, right? I'm just, that's just not my first instinct. It's to go to the city and trade. And he's like, hey, I've got lots of stuff. I'm going to be away for a while. You're in charge of this. I'm like, great. I'm going to bury it. Like, that's just not, that's weird, right? I, and and it, it has left asking us like, wait, what's going on with this guy? Is he scared? Is he really bad with money? Does he got a gambling problem he's trying to cover up? Uh, is he a pirate, right? He just wants to bury the treasure. We don't know. And so we have to keep reading to find out. And that's where, and that's where just Jesus left it, leaves it. We'll figure it out later. Now, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. After a long time. And he had received five talents, came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents, and I have, here I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, which apparently 100-year salary is a little. Whatever. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? This is a great, wonderful affirmation. Like, like oh man, that's, that's great. You're, you've been good. You've been faithful over just this little thing. I want to give you so much more, is the master's response. Come enter into the joy of your master. Like, so, so what we see in this master is he's not just like, here, do this task while I'm gone. This is an invitation of him to, jo- to join him in what he's doing. Like, join me in what I'm going. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the man who had two talents, he came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So what's the difference between what he said to the first guy and the second guy? Do you see it? There isn't one. That was a trick question. Got you. All right. So there's no difference, right? So, so the way he treats the guy that made five, made second, it, it shows. And Jesus is setting this up. And the reason, like, because do- I told this story to my daughter last night. She gets to be the guinea pig a lot of times. And she's like, wait, why do you give him different amounts? Well, first off, it's a story. Who knows? <laughs> but I think Jesus had to, did that to say, it's not about what you've been given. Like, throw that out the window. We're not talking about that in this parable. God, the, the master gave one five, he gave one two, he gave one one. That's his MO. And he's not concerned with how much he gave. And he's not concerned with how much they returned to him. He's concerned with, were they faithful? And we see that as he continues. Because we know what's coming next, Right? Right. The pirate servant. So, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. More on that in a second. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. So first things first. As he steps forward, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? The first thing he starts talking about. 
Master, I know you, I knew you to be a hard man. What in this parable would lead us to believe that the master was a hard man? His generosity in handing out bags of money to people, right? His, his avid affirmation of the people for just being faithful with what they're given. His desire to bless them even more. His invitation for them to join him in his work. Like we have not seen a harsh master in this passage. And yet his, his perception of the master is you're a hard man. Master, I know that you're a jerk. <laughs> like that's kind of where he goes with this. Uh, and then his, his reasoning is, is even kind of more shaky. Because I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered, scattered no seed. Like, listen, you are a super successful businessman. Anything you go, your success, you, you must have done something un, like underhanded or shaky. Uh, the point is, you're a jerk. I don't think I can trust you. Here, have your money back. I don't want to participate. Right? I don't trust you. I think you're a jerk. Here's your money back. I don't want to participate. But the master, yeah, and and he even points out, he says, I went and hid your talent in the ground because uh, I was afraid. Okay? But the master doesn't buy it. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? That you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Like, oh, if you, were, if you were afraid of losing it, you could have given it to a bank. Wouldn't that be safe? Yeah. This is not a matter of were you afraid you were going to lose this. This is about the servant's refusal to participate in what the master invited him into. You could have safely put it in the bank. It probably would have been much easier than digging a hole. Like, give me 20 years salary, I'm not thinking, I need to do some manual labor. Like, that's just not, there's something funky going on here. And so, the master decrees a verdict. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. That also really bothered my daughter. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He should give it to the guy that has four, so that's kind of more even. (laughs) Okay, well, clearly, Jesus, again, is not saying like, hey, we want everybody to have the same amount. It's not about how much you have. It's about participation in this parable. That's what he's trying to highlight as the focus. It's not about being even. Because we're invited to be in the invitation for these servants to work and to act as representatives, as it says, in his absence. And then he even tells us why. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord, (laughs) right? (laughs) Things were going so well at the beginning. You've got this generous master handing out bags of money. But by the end, we've got a pirate servant. We've got like outer darkness. We've got weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've got to he who doesn't have more will be taken? Like, what do we do with all this stuff? Right? Like, what's the key to unlock? Like, what's going on here? What, what is Jesus after? And I think that's the key question that really unlocks this story. 
We're not simply looking for what did Jesus mean. We're looking at what did he intend. Like what was Jesus after? The key to finding what Jesus meant is actually to find his intent. That rhymed so you could go ahead and write it down because that was pretty good. All right. The key to finding what he meant is, to, is finding Jesus' intent. What did he intend to get out of this? So let's start by simple plug and play, right? Who does the master represent in this story? This is a really easy one, guys. You got this. Jesus, right? In, in context here, Jesus is just, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to be going away for a while and I will return. Similar, this master said, hey, I'm going away for a while. Take these until I return. Right? Pretty easy crossover there to Jesus. So, who is represented by those awaiting the master's return? This one's just as easy. Those awaiting the master's return. (laughs) we, We who are awaiting our master's return. Right? We are actually in this in-between part that's talked about here. That, that Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the death, risen from the death, risen from death, ascended to be with the Father, and we are awaiting his return one day to restore all things. This is the story. This is where we find ourselves in the story. And so we're these, these people waiting. And so the question becomes, and why this is so applicable to us, is how do we wait? How do we think about this waiting period where we wait for Jesus to return? That's why he's telling these stories. Like we, we need to be ready like the, like the women waiting for the groom. We need to be like these servants. Which, which servant are we going to be like? Where do we find ourselves in this story? Jesus is describing both positive and negative examples of how we are to wait for our master's return. How do we view and interact with God in this world as we wait for Jesus and our conclusions from this story, what we draw out of this must fit and answer those questions because that's what Jesus is after. So I want to hit basically three takeaways that I think come to the forefront. Sorry, turn my page. The first takeaway I think we see is that this life really matters. Like it matters. It matters to Jesus how we live this life we're given on earth. Like this, sh- this seems like it should be a given. Jesus is very clear in the story that the master cared about what the servants did in his absence. Right? He left them with the task, and it was not to dig a hole, and not to hide what he has entrusted us. And, and actually, like, the word hiding is actually not a super common word in the Bible. And one of the, I think, the key passages where it's used is earlier in this book in Matthew 5, uh, where he says, you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill and you cannot be hidden. Right? No one lights a lamp and then hides it under a basket. Like, no, let your light shine before men. You're a city meant to be seen. You're a light meant to shine out. This is actually where city light got its name. Is actually those, those verses where a city and a light on a hill. Um, but, but the point is, don't hide it. And I think it, it tr- carries over this idea that do not put away your witness. Do not hide what you're called into. Jesus is doing something in the world and has set us up, the church, as the people of God. And he set us up as the means by which the mission is going to continue forward. We're called to be on a city on a hill for all to see and a light to all the world. 
this life matters in so many ways. So let me just like let me just run through this. So like this life matters in how we engage with society. Scripture just does not leave room for this this like mentality of like this world is headed to hell in a handbasket. I'm just going to separate myself out. I'm going to just let them do them. They're going to just all burn one day. Like that, that is so far from what Jesus is teaching here. Like no, no. How you interact with culture matters. We need to act as God's representatives, as instruments wanting to, to shift the culture towards the thriving that the Jesus is bringing. Towards the thriving that Jesus is ushering in. We should, we should want to see the culture mirror the kingdom culture that we're so longing for. The one that Jesus is going to go set up. You know, so I've, I've heard this analogy where it's like, say, like, I own this house and I'm leaving because uh, I'm moving to California for three years, okay? And I'm going to set you in charge of it. It's like, hey, when I get back, I'm going to do a massive remodel, so I'm not, like, I'm, so that's what's coming. Uh, but in the meantime, you can just go ahead and live in it, and then we'll remodel it when I get back. And you, like, hear, oh, he's going to do a remodel. Let's just start peeling off the wallpaper and like kicking in doors like and just start wrecking the house and i come back and i'm like what did you do and it's like well you're gonna remodel it anyway we don't need this <laughs> well no what now it's different if you you all of a sudden like you're like hey i took down this wall because i knew you didn't want it there great thank you but that's actually modeling it after what what the culture is going to be like that'd be the example there like, if we have any effect on the world, it should be this desire and this longing to make it look like the kingdom that we, that we belong to now. This desire to see the culture mirror what this world uh, is, was meant to look like and how we are meant to interact. Right? This life matters in how we treat the planet. I don't know if I can go on record as saying that because there's a weird hot topic. But like, we can't say like, this whole world's going to burn, God's going to nuke it and give us a new one. Like, that's just not a Christian view of this world. We're called to be stewards, and this, we should want this, this desire, and this was where the house actually probably would have fit better in my notes, but, like, this desire to, to see this world thrive. Because it was made to thrive. We want everything around us to thrive, and we should desire to see it thrive, to look more like the kingdom we long for. This life matters in how we interact and care for the helpless. Uh, both the Old Testament and, the New, and Jesus make very clear that one of God's primary concerns is the helpless. Like, in fact, this is inseparable from who God is and the nature of the gospel. Like, you can't separate that out. Like, God describes himself as a rescuer of the captives. I'm the God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the God that frees captives. Like, anybody here been set free? Like, that's the gospel. We were captives and slaves to our sin, and God set us free. He's the God who raises up those who are helpless. On our own, we were helpless. And God raised us up. This is what he's about. This is who God is. Right? God is the healer of the sick. God is the healer of the hurting. God's the savior of the lost. These aren't just things that are nice things to think about. These are things that are just ingrained in who God is. 
This is the culture that God wants us to be right. And, and how we reflect that in this life matters to God. This life matters for the mission of God. Like Jesus called us to a very specific mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. Like this is a very specific command that he expects us to embark on in his absence. Now he's not going to come back and be like, did you fill the quota? Like that's not what he's about. But he's an invitation. It's like this is, I'm renewing and rescuing this entire world. Like the whole world, I'm going to renew and make it into something as it was designed to be, into a type of thriving that it's never known. Do you want to, do you want in? Do you want in? Like, oh my gosh, it's such a good invitation and that matters. This life matters. How we interact in this life matters. The second thing I think we see is that how we interact with this life is grounded in who you believe God to be. Like what you believe about God is going to absolutely just flow out into how you interact with this world. And this parable highlights this master as a good and generous master inviting his servants into his work. And the wicked servant not only refused to enter his work, but he did so because of his rejection of the master. His estimation, his perspective on who the master was is the reason he chose not to participate in the master's work. Like, I know you're a hard man. I know you can't be trusted. So I'm just, I'm not in. Now, this is a really short leap uh, for you to apply to some people you probably know. Right? These people that have solidified their view as, as God is this, this hard, um, intolerant man. Uh, the, the God of the Bible is a jerk. I can't or I won't follow him. And then anything that happens is then filtered through that grid. Right? I, just, I just can't believe that, like, that, that just such a jerk. There's no way I'm participating in that. However, there's a, this, this other short leap that I see in applying it to my own life. Like, how often have I been this, this wicked, lazy servant? How often have I just blown off the mission of God? Like, I, like I think somewhere in my mind, I must, I must just believe that God's not trying to lead me into, a th- into thriving. He's not inviting me into something great. Like, I, I, in some ways, I must be thinking of him as some sort of, like, harsh taskmaster. Master. Like, he's just putting me to work, and I'm tired. Like, I want to bury it and pretend God hasn't called me into something. <laughs> I just want to bury it. I don't, I don't want to do it. I just want to dig a hole. Right? And so, like, this is even, like, even today. Like, I'm, I'm walking around in my driveway, and I, I hear, like, I have these neighbors that they always sit, like, right outside of their garage door facing my house. And so I'm outside, and I'm like, I know I need to... I could have a conversation with them, see how they're doing, like figure out how I can serve them well, love them well, maybe give them the gospel. And so I'm in my driveway and I start to hear the garage door open and I just like like dead sprint into my house so they don't see me so it doesn't look like I blew them off. What? Like I did blow them off. I don't want it to look like I blew them off. Like, oh man, I totally missed it there. Like I wanted to, I, I just, I dug a hole. I hate it. I don't want to deal with this right now. And 
the shift that needs to happen in my mind. What I must step into and believe is that God's invited us into something wonderful. I don't need to go and sell them a product. Like, the minute you're telling me to sell something, I'm out. Like, I don't want any part of that. God isn't some sort of, like, sales representative that leads us as his salespeople. Like, this isn't a pyramid scheme we're in here. Like, he is fully capable of doing anything that he wants and saving whatever he wants. And he invites us into this process. He chooses to use us. Like, this is a glorious invitation. And I need, what I need is not simply to buckle down and work harder. What I need is to, to shift my perspective of the master. I need to operate like these first two guys. Like, oh my gosh, he, I'm going to go right away, urgently, and go, go start trading. I'm going to go enter into this work. I'm going to be, like, I'm his servant, and he's invited me to be his partner. Like, that's insane. Rather than the guy that digs a hole. And then the third thing I think we need to draw from this. The first is uh, that this life matters. The second is that how we interact with this life is grounded in what you believe about God. And third, I think, out of this, we, we learn that doing nothing is far more wicked than we realize. Like, that's not a fun point to write down, but, like, this, this story ended in a guy going to hell. <laughs> like, this is, this is rough. Like, he calls him a wicked and slothful servant. Like, evil and lazy. As if, in this context, these two terms are synonymous. Right? If you're lazy, then you are evil. And if you actually contrast it with what he calls the other guys, he calls them, uh, shoot, where is it? Good and faithful. So the opposite of lazy isn't like you work really hard. It's simply you're faithful. You accepted this invitation. But he calls them wicked and lazy. Uh, And the first time I read this, I just kept asking myself, like, man, what did, I mean, what really did the slave do wrong? Like, it's easy for me to, I think maybe in some self-justification, try to, like, in my mind, make it like, this slave was just kind of scared and timid, and this master just demanded so much out of him. But when, the way Jesus tells the story, that's not the point he's driving at. He wants us to see the, the good master inviting somebody into something. And like, so what's the thing that this slave did wrong? Nothing. Not like he did nothing wrong, but nothing is the very thing he did wrong. The master invited him into something great, and the servant refused to participate. I'm not going to go put this in a bank. I'm not going to be a part of what you're doing. I'm going to dig a hole and bury it in like this outright rebellion of, I'm not going to do what you told me to. Then when you come back, I'm going to give it to you back. Say, here, I don't want it. He refused to participate. So the master takes away this like common grace that he gave to them all uh, and banishes him to the outer darkness. Now this outer darkness is a description, one of the many like metaphors the Bible uses, ways to describe hell. Like sometimes there's fire, sometimes there's outer darkness, and this what he's what he's driving for is this place where like you you're outside of those that get to participate. If you don't want to be participate, then you are going to be in the outer darkness. You're going to be left out. Like what Jesus says is like if you do not want to participate in the kingdom, then there's no place for you in the kingdom. Like this outer darkness carries this idea of like. You're left out. 
Like, you, no, no, you don't get to come in if you're not willing to participate. Now, Jesus never mentioned that this man needed to, like, meet a quota or do anything in particular um, that was really hard. The issue is not that the slave wasn't good enough. Like, remember, this is, this is a story Jesus told. And that's nowhere on Jesus' mind. He's not addressing whether or not the slave was good enough. What he addressed is, did the slave participate or reject the invitation? That's what Jesus is driving home. It was not his reality if he wasn't good enough. He was invited to the work of his master to be faithful with what he'd been given, yet he chose to do nothing and he chose not to participate. Now, if I'm honest, like even now, even reading this, this this at times seems a little too harsh for me. Like it seems a little harsh, right? I don't want to participate in what you're doing, so there's no room for me in anything. Like I'm cast out in the outer dark. Like, and honestly, what that means is like when I come to these times where like, ooh, that seems a little harsh. I don't know about that. Where I like want to press back on the Bible, I just have to believe that my sin blinds me to how destructive this type of rebellion is. Like, I'm a firm believer that God sees things correctly, even when I don't. That's why I must be seeing this. When I see things differently than God, I must be seeing them wrongly. So it means I sin, I'm like, maybe I'm far more prideful and self-centered and sinful than I realize. Maybe it's far more important to accept Jesus' invitation than I realize. And the, the story after this is uh, him separating the sheep from the goat. And he, and he kind of gets into some stuff. Uh, there with, with what is a result of choosing not to participate in the kingdom and what it looks like when you want to reject God's invitation and what it looks like to accept God's invitation. So if you want to keep reading the rest of Matthew 25, that'll be in there um, and, and how destructive it is to not, why it is so important to the heart of God. But, um, but as we close, I simply want to put this invitation before you, that Jesus is inviting you into his work. He's inviting you into what he's doing. And it's not because you're awesome, right? It's not because he needs you. It's not because, like, he's looking down from heaven being like, oh, if we go from JV to varsity, if I got him. Like, that's, that's not at all what God's doing. The master has shown that he's far more capable of running the show than these slaves. And yet, out of his great wealth, offers them an invitation to participate. Like, even in this thing, like, they got to keep what they earned. They give it to the one who has ten. He still has them. This is a good and generous master. He's inviting partners. He doesn't want slaves. He wants partners. And Jesus is in the same way inviting us into an entirely different kingdom. Now, this is one purchased by his blood. And for those who accept this offer, he entrusts us with work while he's away. Right? So we are saved from our sin and death by Jesus And we are saved to a brand new way of living. And the Bible holds those really closely as a package deal. Like the invitation is is sweet. We could have, we are, we are far more messed up than we realize. And yet God still chose to die for us. It's a wonderful news and a wonderful invitation. And so the question on the table is how will we respond to this offer? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, Jesus, I thank you for coming down and telling us the things that, that honestly may rub us the wrong way, that we may not want to hear, uh, that may be hard for us to hear, that no one likes, Lord, uh, getting their perspective pressed on. 
uh, to getting their worldview challenged. It's just a really uncomfortable experience. And so I'm just so thankful that uh, you care about us far too much to, to let us just um, live uh, in, a, in a wrong perspective of the world, in wrong relation to you, in wrong relation to those around us, in a wrong relation to the world. Uh, you care about us too much to just let us live um, in our destructive tendencies, and, and you want to come and show us a better way, and have purchased us, cleansed us, put your Holy Spirit in us, and have uh, shown us that way so that we can live in that way um, for you and for your glory. Lord, uh, we long for your kingdom, uh, and let us see glimpses of it more and more here. Um, help us to be agents of that, uh, accepting your offer, Lord. Um, let us see the beautiful work that you've put before us as a joy and a privilege. For your name and your glory, Jesus. Amen.